0: As we come into the presence of God, just like when we first meet someone, the most powerful moment is the one where we hear them speak. Hear now as God speaks from his word. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from Matthew 7, verses 13 through 23. We invite you to follow along in your Bible, and if you don't happen to have a Bible with you, please feel free to use one of the red pew Bibles in front of you. We continue with our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Again, Matthew 7, verses 13 through 23. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus... Away from me, you evildoers. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Would you pray with me? Father, as we come in this sermon of Jesus to what is in many ways a heavy text, I pray that you would be near to us. Give us your wisdom and guidance. Let your spirit work in our hearts. Be with all of us sinners that we might heed your word. Be with me a sinner as I preach it. Pray all of these things. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, um, thanks to going to seminary there. Elizabeth and I, as many of you know, lived in St. Louis for about four years. When you live in St. Louis, you're kind of required to become a Cardinals fan, or else you're taken out and shot. Um, Especially when they win the pennant one of those four years that we were there. But, um... So in getting to know a sports team like we got to know the Cardinals, or at least I did, um, you'd hear one of the like, it, things you get to kind of get inducted into them is you hear these kind of different stories about things that happened over the years that are sort of iconic moments for the team. And so you heard about like back in 1946 when Eno Slaughter, whose statue is still outside of the, um, outside of the ballpark there, um, won the, helped won the World Series with the in the park home run that his coach kept telling him to stop and he didn't, or um, you hear about the controversies surrounding, say, Mark McGuire back in the 1990s, but um, one of the stories I remember most, probably because uh, when somebody shared it with me about being Cardinals fan, it was kind of in living memory for everybody, it happened in 2002, um, and in 2002, the Cardinals had a pitcher named Daryl Kyle, and he was doing a great job, and lots of people liked him, and then... Um, They were actually in Chicago up here for a series against the Cubs, and one day uh, Kyle didn't show up from his hotel room, and they went back, and they found that he had passed away in his hotel bed. And this was shocking for a lot of reasons, first because it Well, while you'd think it might be more common, it's really rare for an athlete to die while they're still kind of in an active season playing a sport. But more than that, I mean, he's this guy, he's 33 years old, he's completely healthy. He had just apparently had a physical like two days before, and he had passed away. And when they did the autopsy, they discovered the cause of death, which was that Kyle's main coronary artery was more than 90% blocked. Nobody knew it. And so he had just had a heart attack, kind of out of the blue. And that story is one that I think is familiar to all of us when we think about medicine. We often hear of these tragedies striking, right, where everything looks fine from the outside, but then suddenly, out of the blue sky, something terrible happens. There's a cancer, or a defect, or a blocked artery. And that reminds us that health, right, is more than simply looking healthy or even feeling healthy. Health is something that has to do with these internal realities for us, of whether we are truly healthy. And the same thing is true of Christianity. We live in this country where 71% of the population would self-identify as Christian. It's easy to claim the name of Jesus where we live. Everything from the outside looks fine, but Jesus consistently warns us that this outward appearance... Isn't enough. Indeed, Jesus is preaching to this crowd in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know how you picture them, but these are all religious people. These are the Jews turning out to see what this new rabbi is going to say. Um, and so he starts talking to them about two different groups of people in all three of these kinds of images he gives us this morning, and crucially... His two groups of people are not you good Christians and those pagans out there, right? That is not how he divides the world. He isn't patting his hearers on the back. As we see in verse 21, the group of people that he's speaking against also call him Lord, Lord. They claim to follow the God of the Bible. But as we've seen, part of what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is challenging that perception, calling us to a self-examination. Because, Jesus is convinced, for some of his hearers, it's not for real. And that is a challenging topic. I feel the weight of that as we walk into this text this morning. But it's one that we need to wrestle with. It's like going to the doctor, right? You don't really want to do it, but you know that you will. And when you go, you don't want him to, like, look at you and say, oh, you look fine, don't worry about it, right? You want him to check you out because we understand that there's too much on the line. And in many ways, that's the truth for us this morning. We are being called to an examination, to ask ourselves, are we for real? Are we following Jesus? And I know that's an unpleasant question, but we've got to ask that too, because the stakes are even higher. So as we ask that tough question, are we for real, Jesus gives us three categories to be aware of, three areas for our spiritual physical, which actually sounds kind of... Anyway, (laughs) um, three categories. Are we walking in the truth? Are we learning the truth? And do we know the truth? Are we walking in the truth? Are we learning the truth? Do we know the truth? So let's look at each of those in turn. First, are we walking in the truth? The first picture Jesus uses is of two paths, right? Two paths that you can be walking on and two gates that those paths lead to. And now a path in the Bible is often used as a picture of the way we're living, the course of our lives, the combination of choices that we make and actions that we take, and a gate is a picture of what we're living for, of how we're seeking to enter into God's kingdom. And here's what Jesus says about those gates and paths. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So Jesus is saying that one of the ways that we can go as Christians is broad and easy, and the other is narrow and hard. But at the end of the first is destruction, and at the end of the other is life. And I think when we visualize those two paths, we can have the wrong picture. When when preachers describe the broad path, they've traditionally made it sound like I don't know, like the rock and roll lifestyle, all right? It's like you're shooting up heroin with a bevy of beautiful women while you're reclining on your bed made of $100 bills, all right? That's what the broad path looks like. That's what they think leads to destruction. But here's the thing, that can't be it. In the first place, because most people just can't live this way. If I was not following Jesus, my life would look nothing like that. I don't have enough money to make a bet out of $100 bills. But even more than that, as we said, the people Jesus is addressing are people who are already predisposed to be religious. Jesus isn't talking about wild living as opposed to respectable living. Rather, here's what I think he means when he talks about the broad and narrow path. In John 10, Jesus uses this similar image. He says, starting in verse 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door, or gate, of the sheep, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and find pasture. The narrow gate is narrow because the narrow gate is Jesus. What he is saying is that it is only by making your whole path centered on him that you get entrance into eternal life. Here's what I think Jesus means. Here's, I think, maybe a better picture for those two paths. I remember a few years ago helping a single friend of mine. This was while I was in seminary. Um, fill out an online dating profile, by which I mean that a few of us sat around and heckled him while he did it. But um, but one of the things he did on his profile was he had to rank this list of like 25 different priorities from one to 25, right? And in some ways, I thought that list was really instructive because when you imagine the person walking the broad path, it is not that they would rate it like this, right? They would not say, my priorities, well, let's see, like drugs and chicks and rock and roll, and there's 22 more, what do I do? That is not the image. What Jesus' picture of the broad path is, I think, is something like this. You sit down with that list and you say, well, let's see, first is my family, yep, yeah, and then my job. Number three, America, and number four, my hobbies, and number five is financial security. Oh, and Jesus, we need him on there, so number six, seven is travel. Should I switch those two? That, in many ways, is the broad path. What makes the broad path broad is that it tries to have Jesus as just one of the many things that we're living our life for, that he's just a corner of life, one of a long list of items on the resume. The narrow path is narrow because Jesus is the one thing that we are ultimately following on it, that he defines the whole width of the road. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't value those other things. We do. But it's that we value family and work and travel through Jesus rather than in addition to him. We value them through Jesus rather than in addition to him. And that might seem like a small difference, but it's really huge. Here's what I mean. If I value my job and Jesus, right, those are two separate priorities. I'm divided between them. And there will be times that they come into conflict. What if that promotion requires me to sacrifice my walk with the Lord for a few years to get it? What if it requires me to do something sketchy? Too often, the answer becomes, well, right now, I'm going to focus on my job, so I'll kind of put a hold on this Jesus stuff when they're two separate priorities. But if I value my job through Jesus, then that changes, right? I'm still working at it and working hard because God calls me to and it's a task that he's given me, but when, what, um, but when what would help me at work comes into conflict with Jesus, right, there really isn't a conflict because I'm in this thing for him to begin with, so the idea of compromising my walk with him for it just doesn't make sense. This is what it means to walk the narrow path. And we have all these parts of our lives, family and marriage and work and country and hobbies and travel, all those priorities, all those good parts of our lives, in every one of them, Every day, we are asking, how does Jesus want me to live in this part of my life? How can I obey and follow him with my spouse or my boss or whoever? It is only by putting our whole lives under the reign of King Jesus that we find the life that lies through the narrow gate. That reality, that the narrow gate is Jesus and that it means we must make him our overarching aim in life, also helps us, I think, with some of the wrong ways we can hear this text. Sometimes believers come to this passage and they start feeling awful because they feel like there's this narrow path and few find it. And, oh no, I am imperfect, right? And there's a good fearfulness to have with this text. I don't want to take that away. But there can also be a wrong sort of condemnation we do. But here's the thing. There is a fundamental difference if the path is Jesus between stumbling along the narrow path towards him and not being on that path to begin with. I ran track in high school, right? And, um, and long-distance track. And over the course of like a 1,600 or 3,200-meter you know, race, you would see this sort of like trail of people emerge, right? Where you had some crazy people, who were up front, and then you had, you know, kind of like the big group of people, and near that back of the group was me, and then kind of trailing off behind us, you know, you'd have a few other people, and maybe one or two very brave people who were even just walking because they, you know, had just started track or something. But you had this long line, and right, you could see people at different points at that race, but I still, even the person way in the back, never got them confused with someone sitting in the stands, right? That is the fundamental difference. It isn't whether you're nailing it on the narrow path or struggling. It isn't whether you're way out in front or stumbling just to finish. The difference is whether you are trying to run that race after Jesus or whether you're just watching from the sidelines, just trying to fit him in when he's convenient. That if you're seeking after Jesus, be encouraged. All you have to do is walk in the truth, not run in it. But if you aren't, if Jesus is just an afterthought or just something somewhere down that list of priorities that's easily ignored, then it's probably a good idea to spend some time thinking about that and thinking about Jesus's words here. So we're called to walk in the truth. Then Jesus shifts gears and starts talking about another diagnostic question. He asks us whether we're learning the truth. Whether we're learning the truth. And this is less a test for us than a test that we're given in assessing the world and teachings about Jesus that we encounter there, because those things can also lead us astray. So Jesus says in verse 15 Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Watch out for false prophets. And when the Bible uses the term false prophet, it doesn't just mean someone who tells the future or something. While there are places in scripture where some people who are prophets supernaturally predict the future, that's not their main job. A prophet in scripture is someone who proclaims God's word to God's people. Um, Prophecy isn't just about predicting, but at heart it's about instructing. It's not about predicting, but instructing. And so Jesus is saying, lots of people are going to tell you what it means to follow me. You'll hear lots of conflicting ideas about what it means to be a Christian, and you need to watch out because not all of those ideas are true. Some of them, if you follow them, are actually going to lead you away from me. And right up front, we need to make sure we have the right idea about what Jesus means. He doesn't mean that false prophets are false simply because they get some stuff wrong, right? Christians believe a number of different things about a number of different specific issues, Like this morning, right, we had this awesome chance to baptize baby Bennett, and some Christians don't think you should do that, and that's fine, right? We disagree about that, but that's not what Jesus is talking about when he talks about false prophets. A false prophet is something else. It's someone who appears to be a Christian teacher, but actually isn't. Someone who looks like a sheep, Jesus says, but is actually a wolf. And we have to watch out for such people, because following them can shipwreck our faith. So how do we recognize them? I think Jesus gives us three warning signs in our text today. Three things we should watch out for in people that we choose to learn about Jesus from. And it can be hard to sort through their different teachings. So these warning signs in many ways are less about the specifics of that than about things that we should just watch out for when we see. First, it's that false prophets end up serving themselves rather than God. They're serving themselves rather than God. In verse 15 Jesus describes them as ferocious wolves. And we hear that and think maybe it just means that they're dangerous, which it does. But it means more than that. The word ferocious actually means insatiably hungry, all right? It means ravenous. It means, therefore, that they're actually devouring, actually feeding on the sheep that they are called to serve. They're using God's people to sate their appetites. And there's lots of kind of nuanced discussions you can have about this, but bluntly, I think one of the biggest things it means is that we as Christians need to be very cautious of teachers who are getting rich off of Jesus, that if they are, we need to be careful. When Peter describes false teachers, he says that in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Paul talks about their sensuality and selfishness. That's a complicated topic, right? Because I understand that it's easy for us to assume that everyone who makes any money more than I do is making too much money, right? And that I'm making, well, maybe I need to make just a little bit more too. Um, And I don't, I want to be careful in how I phrase this, but there are plenty of famous preachers on TV who are getting rich off of God's word. I remember, again, when we lived in St. Louis, a friend took me by, um, drove me way out of town past this estate, That belongs to a prominent Christian author and teacher who, um, if I named you, would know. And and by estate, I mean a $2 million, 10,000 square foot house with an eight-car garage and a pool and a putting green on 10 acres, right? Which she would drive from to the airfield where her $10 million private jet was so that she could travel around for ministry. And I know that it is tricky to judge things, and so I'm not going to pass judgment on that, but I do think that one of the things Jesus would tell us is when you see that in a teacher, watch out. Be cautious. Because it's entirely possible that they're teaching you to serve them rather than Christ. And that selfishness can show in other ways too, right? Maybe you're not rich, but speaking very frankly, I know how easy it is for people in ministry to use the ministry to kind of make them feel good about themselves, to stroke their egos. And that's a complicated thing too, but when you hear a teacher who talks all the time about how great they are, or how big their church is, or how successful their ministries are, and how awesome the things are that they've done for God, you should also be careful, and probably step away. And frankly, that and all of these things include me, right? If I turn into that guy. So one of the warning signs of false teachers is that they're serving themselves rather than God. A second warning sign is that false prophets' followers don't end up looking like Jesus, that the people who follow them don't end up looking like Jesus. So in verse 16, Jesus says, By their fruit, you will recognize them. By their fruit, you will recognize them. He uses this picture of different plants. If you want to pick grapes, do you try to do it from a thorn bush? No. If I see a tree growing apples, I call it an apple tree. If I see it growing pears, I don't. What does Jesus mean by fruit? Well, first, he can't mean that the person is just clearly a terrible person, all right? Because he's already said that they're dressed up like sheep. So although fruit is sometimes used to mean personal holiness, like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, I don't think that's what Jesus means here, because false prophets, kind of by dint of being false prophets, are leading outwardly holy lives. Likewise, Jesus can't mean success. People sometimes talk about a fruitful ministry and mean a successful one. But the whole danger of false teachers is that they get lots of people to follow them, right? You can't say, he can't be a false teacher, look how big his church is. Instead, I think by fruit, Jesus here means whether the people who follow a teacher are becoming more like Jesus. Whether they're falling more in love with him and being more excited by him. That the, that the fruit they're supposed to bear is sort of the fruit of looking like the thing from which it's planted, Christ. There are churches full of people who gather together to be told that we're all fine, that we don't need to change, that we're great, and everyone around us is a loser. And in that kind of church, people aren't being called to look more like Jesus. They're being told that they look great already. And Jesus is warning that people coming from that kind of place are also in danger, Because preaching that produces self congratulation and pride is probably false teaching. Third, the last warning sign of a false prophet is that they try to sell themselves based on their achievements. They try to sell themselves based on their achievements. If you look at verse 22, and that's actually part of the next section, but what's interesting about it is there's these people that they say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy, right? So these are false prophets in a sense, at least some of them, in your name. So they sound a lot like that. Did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And here these people are before the judgment seat of God, and what they're pleading is, Lord, look at all the impressive stuff I did for you. Doesn't that earn me something? Of course, God, who sits in perfect power and needs nothing from human hands, says, nope, not impressed. One of the things that sometimes makes me uncomfortable is the way certain celebrity Christians get sold to me and to us. People say, look at this guy. Look how big his church is. Look how many copies of this book he sold. Look at the miraculous signs he's supposedly done. Clearly, this is someone that we should be listening to. And the problem is, Worldly success is not a measure of faithfulness. It just isn't. In the first place, worldly success is a gift of God, not something you earn by being awesome. I remember um, Tim Keller, right, a guy who has gotten some worldly success in ministry, but who is one of the few people that remains remarkably humble in it. Um, I remember hearing him once being interviewed at a conference, and I tried to find it so I can't get the exact quote, but he's at this conference, and um, And it's pretty early after his church in New York City has gotten big, and they're asking him about his great successes in ministry and stuff, and Keller cuts off the guy asking the question, and he looks kind of irritated, and he says, look, I pastored a smallish church for more than 10 years in Virginia, and we saw a little bit of modest growth, right, but nothing to write home about, and I was faithful there and proclaimed the gospel, and nobody invited me to come speak at any conferences. And then I planted a church in New York City, and it started to grow quickly, and I was doing the exact same things I was doing at that church in Virginia, being faithful and proclaiming the gospel, but suddenly everybody wanted, me to, everybody wanted me to come talk at their conferences, which makes me think that maybe what you're interested in isn't faithfulness or the gospel, but just getting a really big church. All of which is to say, it's not wrong if someone has a successful ministry, But just because they do, it doesn't make what they teach true. The only meaningful measure of truthfulness is whether they're teaching the Bible and calling people to follow Jesus. If they point to their outward success, rather than doing that, rather than pointing to Jesus, then we need to be careful. All of which is a long way of saying, look out for false prophets. Seek to learn the truth. So that's the second idea, right? We need to not just walk in the truth, but we need to learn the truth. And that's something for us to watch for, because there can be real danger in us if we let ourselves be fed by people who aren't pointing us towards Jesus. But, um, but Jesus has one final kind of area to check ourselves. And in many, many ways, I think this is the, the most important one. And that is to ask, do we know the truth? Do we know the truth? So he tells this story, this picture of final judgment, and he says that there are lots of people on that day, lots of people who think that they're Christians, and they'll say, Lord, Lord, didn't we serve you? Didn't we obey you? Didn't we do all of this stuff for you? We already read through that list, and then this is what Jesus says in verse 23, and I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers key phrase in that verse, the key difference is these words, I never knew you. I never knew you. So we're called to follow after and seek to obey the truth and to learn and grow in it, but the key difference is that we are to know the truth. And by know, we don't mean in the sense of facts, but in the sense of knowing a person, the person Jesus Christ, knowing and being known by him. That's the question Jesus ultimately asks. Do you know Jesus? And in a deep, real, personal way. This is one of the most important things you'll ever hear me say in a sermon. So I'm going to be as clear and direct about this as possible. Our world is full of people who are good people, And they live good lives, and they are respectable, and they profess the name of Jesus, and they go to church from time to time, or maybe even every Sunday, and they avoid the big sins. They don't beat their kids or steal or whatever, and they pay their taxes, and they tithe, and they are fine Americans and decent neighbors and live their whole lives doing those things year after year, and then they die, and then they go to hell, which is harsher than I almost ever am. But I feel the weight of this for us. There is one question, and only one, that ultimately matters. It isn't who your family is, or your denomination, or your congregation. It isn't how you even behave, although that's supposed to follow, or whether you say the right things, or whether you're a good citizen. All of that is fine and needful in its place, but they only matter if you answer the one ultimate question right first. And that question is, have you come to know God through Jesus Christ? Have you come to know God through Jesus Christ? Imagine a family planning a wedding, right? Say a wedding for their daughter, because in America that's who has to pay for the wedding and usually does most of the planning. And all the stuff that goes into that. They go pick out a beautiful dress. They reserve a great venue. They plan the meals and appetizers and buy the decorations and pick out the flowers and invitations and place settings and table decorations and hire a photographer and find a minister and work on a guest list and seating arrangements and do all the ridiculous, excessive stuff that goes into planning a wedding in the United States, right? Imagine that family. All of that is great, but there is one question that has to be answered before they do all of that, right? And that question is, is there a groom? Is there a groom? Because if they haven't found that first, then none of the insanely detailed planning matters. It's not going to happen. There won't be a wedding if there isn't a person their daughter is marrying. This is exactly the case with Christianity. It is a call to enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He is the bridegroom, and we as the church are meant to be his bride. Just speaking honestly, you know one of the things I fear most as a pastor, that I wrestle with and pray about the most, is this horrible idea that I might minister to people, and that they might learn a bunch of facts about God, and that they might live somewhat marginally more moral lives, but at the end of it all, that I might find that all of that was for nothing, Because they didn't meet Jesus. And I don't want that for any of y'all. There's something that we need to soberly reflect on. As Jesus says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Feel the weight of that. The fact that you say you're a Christian, that's not what determines whether you are. The only thing that makes you a Christian is knowing, truly knowing, Jesus being known by him. If you know Jesus, take heart in that. Because none of that other stuff matters as much as that. Not that it isn't important, but in many ways that that stuff, all the stuff we struggle with, in the end, that will work itself out if we are following hard after Christ and love him. Slowly but truly, it will. That if you know and love Jesus, if you are desperate for him and want him, then you can leave this place with the confident encouragement that you are a son or daughter of God, even as you struggle in this life. But if you don't know Jesus, I mean really know him, seeing in him a beauty greater than the beauties of this world, and a hope that circles your whole life, if you don't know Jesus, then that's what you need to focus on. It's the only thing that matters. So please meet with him. Practically, if you're there, here's what you do. First, just own it for yourself and to him that you don't really know him, that you might have said the right thing and gone through the motions, but that your heart and life are still your own. Acknowledge that there's something crooked and sinful in you deep down and that you need Jesus to meet you and begin to heal you and cover you and ask him to be yours. And then know that he is and seek to live into that today and for the rest of your life. If that's you and you're in this place, talk to me or someone that you trust if you want help walking through it. But mostly, just forget all that other stuff and ask that question, are you known by God? Because like we said, in the end, that is the only question that matters to us and to him. Would you pray with me this morning? God and Father, I feel the weight of this, and so I just pray that you would help us to see in ourselves as we examine our hearts the truth. Pray that those of us that do know you might grow more and more to know you deeply and truly and so be transformed. Pray that those of us who haven't had that experience of truly knowing you, for whom it's all just kind of been a show or an inheritance, that we might recognize that it's something that we must take possession of and do that. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and true hope in Lord. Amen. Would you stand with me and sing? Amen. It is good to worship with you all this morning. Make sure to congratulate the Hotmans and meet baby Bennett. Hi, buddy. (laughs) Um, And please join us after the service, either for adult education, if you would like, or for a time of fellowship where there's tasty treats and I think a cake, yes, and, and coffee. Walk out into this week chasing hard after Jesus and go with his blessing. May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you his peace now and forever. Amen.